0: Hello everyone and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at what's moving the market. Ben Levison, my regular guest, is away, but I'll be talking all things investing with Barron's Associate Editor, Andrew Barry. Today is September 11th. As most of you know, and before we launch into our call, I'd just like to pay tribute to the many courageous people we lost up and down the East Coast in the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Barron's former office was across the street from the World Trade Center in Manhattan. Andrew was actually there that day. Andrew and I both worked there and we will never forget those people or that day. Now, on to markets. Andrew, the stock market has had an excellent year, but a pretty lousy summer, although Wall Street has mustered a nice rally today. You and I often talk about individual stocks, but I'm wondering how you size up the broader market. How do you look at things? Are stocks expensive? What will the market do in the next couple of months?
1: I think stocks are pretty are, I think, fairly priced right now. Um, the S&P 500 is around 19 times this year's earnings. Um, it's up around around 17 percent this year on a total return basis. And so um, considering the, um, the valuations there, I think it's reasonable. I think while stocks have stalled out in the last uh, couple months, mostly due to higher interest rates, and the perception that the Fed will keep short term rates higher for longer in, in the five percent area. Actually, I think the market is trading pretty well. Anytime you see a rally in the bond market, you, you get a very nice move in stocks. So uh, it looks like the uh, the path of least resistance could be higher for stocks. Small and mid-cap stocks have lagged. There could be some opportunity there as well.
0: So you see the market broadening out a bit. Instead of it's, a been line
1: out. it's been a very much it's been much has been said and written about it, about the, the big seven. I mean, the Amazon, Tesla, Google. Um, NVIDIA like in particular that have really led the market this year. But outside of that, I mean, you can essentially buy many, many stocks and groups at essentially the same price or lower than you could at the start of the year. So it's essentially been a bull market, really, in just a handful of sectors or a relatively narrow part of the market. I mean, utilities, for example, are down around 10% this year, bank stocks are down. Almost 20% on average. Healthcare stocks are slightly in the red. And those are just some examples. Many drug stocks are in the red. So aside from Eli Lilly, I mean, it's not been a particularly strong market for the healthcare sector this year. That's for sure. So next I want to turn to Warren
0: Buffett. He turned 93 years old, or I should say 93 years young this summer. He's the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, and he is considered one of the greatest investors ever, you, on the other hand, are considered one of the best Buffettologists we know. You've covered Buffett and Berkshire extensively over many years. So this is my chance to ask a couple of questions. Is Berkshire a buy now? And how should investors be thinking about the company as Buffett enters his mid-90s?
1: Well, the stock, I think, is not cheap right now. I think it may be fairly priced. Uh, it's actually hitting a record high today, both the A and the B shares right now. Berkshire is actually now ahead of the market for the year. It's slightly ahead of the S and P 500. Uh, the A shares are above 550,000 today. So um, it's it's actually been a good year for. Berkshire Hathaway started a little bit slowly. And um, you know, I think the stock is fairly priced. It's around one and a half times book value, which is slightly above the average for the last 10 years, a little over 20 times this year's earnings, which I think compared to the market is pretty good, considering that Berkshire's carrying a lot of cash and has a, about $150 billion of cash, which means a lot of firepower. If Buffett ever finds what he calls a big elephant-sized acquisition to, to basically execute.
0: So Buffett certainly knows all the stocks in the market. He hasn't found that elephant yet. Is there something he's overlooking in your view?
1: I mean, I think he's focused on buying on buying stocks rather than um, buying um, businesses. I mean, uh, Berkshire's handicapped in the way it operates in terms of acquisitions. It won't participate in corporate auctions. He typically makes a take-it-or-leave-it offer. He doesn't really like to negotiate. So it's not easy for a corporate board to accept a, a Berkshire offer. Allegheny, which uh, Berkshire bought a year ago, was the exception. I think he got lucky with that deal. And it's, it's actually been a quite a good deal for Berkshire, even though it's relatively small and a little bit more than $10 billion. I mean, Berkshire's market cap today is close to $800 billion, which is, with, with the, which is a record high.
0: So as I mentioned, Buffett is entering his mid-90s. He may live forever, but the odds are against it. How should investors be thinking about a post-Buffett Berkshire?
1: Well, it's very interesting. I mean, um, Buffett is 93. He, He shows no signs of wanting to retire. He seems as sharp as ever. Anybody who saw him or listened to him at the annual meeting in May, I mean, just his command of... Berkshire's business, its financials, the markets, the world, uh, the financial world are really, in, really incredible, particularly for a man and his facility with numbers at, at, at this stage in his life. I mean, he would go back and tell people, like, the first stock I bought was in 1942 when I was uh, 12 years old. and Here's what I paid and here's what I made and here's what it was. And so, I mean, that's just an example. Oh, he has an advantage
0: there. Who's going to fact check him?
1: Well, I mean, I know, but I think he's actually right. If you I mean, he, I think he's actually right. So, um, but um so the the question is what happens in the post Buffett era? How long will he be CEO? I'm guessing a couple of years probably. I think it may be harder for him into his late 90s to do it, but it's certainly possible. I mean, Buffett has said that the day after he dies, the stock will go up. And the reason is that People will anticipate a breakup of the company. Buffett has obviously kept this company together. It's the ultimate conglomerate at a time when companies are breaking up and and essentially forming more focused businesses. And Berkshire is the great exception to it. He thinks there are many benefits to Berkshire being together as one company, but it could be argued that some of the parts of Berkshire is worth worth more than the whole, and that once he's gone, that some of the forces uh, could be unleashed to basically break it up. The idea would be the company is too big too unmanageable for someone without Buffett's stature or skills to run it. And I think it'd be, it'd be an interesting test of the uh, Berkshire's board and the the new CEO, who's very likely to be Greg Abel, um, one of the current vice chairmen right now.
0: Good point. I'm glad you mentioned that. We should also note that Berkshire's vice chairman, Charlie Munger, is 99.
1: So Yeah, yeah, he turns 100 early next year. So uh, he's not quite as engaged. If you listen to him at the annual meeting, he didn't quite say as much as he normally does, but he's still very sharp and he's a great sounding board and check on, uh, on Warren Buffett who really doesn't have a lot of checks on the board. The board gives him a ton of leeway. He pretty much does what he wants. All right. So far it's worked. So you've written many stories about
0: Berkshire this year, but you've also written a lot about Johnson and Johnson's recent spinoff of Kenview. That's the consumer products division. This was a complicated deal for J and J and its shareholders, not least because of various lawsuits against the company involving talc, Tylenol, and so forth. But it's also been a tough slog for Kenview. The stock ticker is KBUE. The stock came out, I believe, the beginning of May. It has sunk like a stone since then. So what's ailing Kenview and where to
1: from here? Well, I think to say it sunk like a stone is a a bit of an overstate, but the stock. It I it came public at 22. It traded as high as 26 to 27. It's back around 22 today, so it's not traded great, but it's not been a disaster. And uh, there have been a couple issues. I think there was some the um, the exchange offer that just completed, where Johnson and Johnson exchanged about 35 billion of Kenview stock for J and J shares, has put a lot more Kenview stock in the public float. So about 90% now of it floats. There have been some concern about the lawsuits, most recently about the Tylenol, which is a new one. And just, for, just to refresh um, our listeners, uh, on the talc, which um, is a is a liability for Kenview because it, it's a seller Johnson's baby powder, which it contained talc. J&J is basically indemnifying or t- essentially taking on the risk for the uh, Kenview's talc liabilities in the United States and Canada. But outside North America, Kenview has to handle it. But Wall Street generally doesn't expect much in the way of talc liability outside the US. More recently, there's been concerns about Tylenol liability. Plaintiff's lawyers are alleging that um, essentially pregnant women who took Tylenol, um, they're, 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 some, of their kids, some children may have developed autism or, or uh, ADHD uh, on the spectrum disorders as a result of it. It seems kind of tenuous. There was concern about that last week, but late Friday, the FDA came out with a, a ruling um, where they essentially said they didn't, then a labeling change for Tylenol they didn't feel was warranted. This Ken View stock is up today. Kenview viewed that FDA decision as, uh, or, as being favorable. So it looks like the Tylenol litigation may be receding right now, which, which would be favorable for Kenview. The stock is actually pretty reasonably priced, trades around 17 times this year's earnings. The dividend yield's high threes, about 3.7, 3.8, which is above the J&J yield, and one of the higher yields among, you know, major consumer products companies, and it has a very nice portfolio, Band-Aid, Listerine, Neutrogena, as well as baby powder. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was going to mention those attractive dividends. It's, I think, about 38 at the moment, and the stock is up about 3.6%. So let's talk about some other dividend stocks. Barron's income column argued this weekend that dividend stocks deserve a lot more love than they've gotten this year. What's the case for dividend payers now that you can buy treasuries yielding 5.5%? Well, I mean, mean.
1: I mean that that that's an interesting question. And again, there's a, one of the challenges for the stock market is the competition from the bond market, which you really didn't have, for, haven't had for about 10 or 15 years. I mean, uh, short-term rates are about five percent. I mean, Treasuries, 10-year Treasuries are four and a quarter. Mortgage securities are around six percent right now. Junk bonds are eight or nine percent. Long-term munis are relatively attractive in three to four percent area. So there's more competition. Four stocks than, there ever been there than there's been for the last 15 years. But the nice thing about stocks is not only do you get a yield, but you get some growth in both earnings and hopefully dividends. And um, Lawrence uh, Strauss wrote a column where he highlighted the so-called dividend aristocrats, which are companies with um, long histories of rising dividends. And they've been out of favor in part because quality stocks, and j and is an example, it's down this year, Pfizer's down, Merck is down, uh, some of the banks were are in that category are down. Uh, some of the industrial stocks. So overall, the aristocrats are only up about 5% this year. The market's up around 17. And a case can be made that uh, many of these stocks are looking, are looking pretty appealing right now. And you get 2 to 3% dividend yield, sometimes 4 and the prospect of some growth going, going forward.
0: So what are some of the sectors or some of the stocks that you find particularly attractive in the dividend area?
1: Well, I mean, you can be, I mean, you can look at utilities right now. I mean, they're yielding high, I mean, high, high threes right now. The sector's down about 10% next year energy, which uh, I wrote about favorably, which is down a little bit since our story appeared a couple of weeks ago. High 60 stock, 20-ish times earnings, one of the biggest renewable energy portfolios uh, or uh, renewable power portfolios in the country, wind and solar. Also a very strong utility in the state of Florida. So uh, that's, uh, I mean, that's an example of one. Other, u- other electric utilities, Duke, American Electric Power, many of them yield 4% or more. And the outlook for utilities with the growth in renewable power and also transmission lines and everything else that goes into essentially trying to decarbonize the uh, electric system in the United States, which is still... Very reliant on fossil fuels right now. I mean, renewables are only about 20% of the uh, of all uh, power produced in this country, and it's going to be rising. Even though there are a lot of there's a lot more opposition, a lot more uh, challenges ahead in terms of developing renewable power. I mean, the trend is there, and probably will continue. Probably not as quickly as many of the climate activists would like to see. So, utilities are an area where high. I mean, high high teens. I mean, teens, PEs. 3-ish percent dividend yields. Bank stocks have been a big lagger this year, which is pretty well known. The biggest bank stock is down almost 20% this year. Bank stocks, many of them are trading for 10 times earnings or less. There's some headwinds there from capital issues, from the bond market. Many, many banks, including Bank of America, as well as Schwab and others, have some pretty big losses in their bond portfolios, which is uh, could be a drag on earnings. But uh, overall, I mean. I mean, this could be a reasonable time to to take a fresh look or take a new look at banks. I mean, one of the worst performing bank stocks in the last couple of years has been Citigroup. And Mike Mayo, um, the Wells Fargo analyst, just came out with a uh, positive piece on Citi saying things aren't quite as bad as people fear there. The stock is trading very cheaply under a 10 PE multiple. Half of tangible book value, which is really low. Most of the banks are, almost all the big banks are above tangible book right now. And that that city could be a big buyer of its stock in the coming years.
0: That's interesting. They don't get much respect at all on the street. No. Interesting to hear that. What about food stocks? You wrote about them this weekend, I think,
1: in Barron's. Yeah, food, stocks, food stocks may not be exciting, but uh, again, you're getting three, four, almost 5% dividend yields. The uh, price earnings ratios have come down. Kraft and ConAgra, which are two of the companies that we mentioned favorably, trade for a little more than 10 times earnings, which is pretty unusual to have major food companies with those PE ratios. And, uh, you know, I mean, growth in earnings is not great, it's probably mid to high single digits at best. But uh, these, are, these are pretty steady, Eddie, stocks. And um, it could be that the, the, the outlook is improving for some of them right now. And if the market ever uh, hits a rough patch, I mean, there's a defensive quality to these companies. And I think for, when you've seen weakness in the technology group, you've often seen the food stocks firm up.
0: So I want to go back to banks for a moment and talk about Goldman Sachs, which you've covered extensively through the years. There's been a tremendous amount of chatter lately about David Solomon. Goldman Sachs CEO. He's trying to overhaul Goldman and pair back the company's disappointing bet on consumer finance. There's been grumbling in the upper ranks there as compensation looks like it could fall. How would you assess Solomon's tenure so far and how would you assess his future?
1: I mean, I would say overall, you have to give him like a B maybe or maybe like a low B. I mean, the, the, consumer, fo- the consumer initiative is not really panned out very well. Um, he would argue that it's not a, not really all that important for Goldman Sachs. It's really a very pretty small part of their business. But it's shown that their, their diversification effort, which has been a major focus there, is, it's been more challenging than they had hoped. Goldman Sachs trades at a very low valuation. It trades for around under 10 times earnings, a little bit above book value, which is Morgan Stanley, which is chief driver, trades at a bigger premium to Goldman. And they've been trying to remake Goldman to make it less dependent on trading and investment banking building up their asset management business as well as the consumer business. The consumer business has really not worked out. Their their efforts on the asset management side have been, I think, uh, more successful. And he's become a lightning rod. I mean, he's got an abrasive reputation and he can come across as being somewhat arrogant. And uh, there's been a lot of leaks about uh, coming out of the top ranks there about – His his, his use of private jets and about some of his extracurricular activities, whether it be in terms of DJing and also some of his business ventures. And um, it's not essentially been all that favorable. He's been mounting a charm offensive recently. He was on CNBC last week, and he's trying to downplay these things and suggest that he's more collegial and willing to listen. So it'll be interesting to see if he survives the next six months to a year. I think he definitely wants to, but I think he's the most vulnerable of the big bank CEOs right now.
0: What do you think about the
1: outlook for the stock? No, I think I think the stock is pretty reasonable here. It's trading for a small premium to book value, and I think book is probably a, a pretty good floor for the for the uh, for the stock right now. Earnings are down. Goldman may earn around twenty five dollars a share this year, which puts the P E around I guess ten or twelve. That's down from about 50, about sixty dollars a year in their record year in twenty twenty one. It's harder to predict Goldman's earnings than for some of the other banks like Morgan Stanley, and that kind of will result in a somewhat lower price-earnings ratio and price-to-book ratio because uncertainty, I mean, basically, you know, dampens valuation. So, um, but, you know, I, to my view, the stock at these levels, given the book, what I think should be some book value support for the company, and, and you're essentially getting an option on uh, revival in investment banking activity, MA activity, Goldman's one of the leaders in that market, also other investment banking work. So, um it's it's actually it, to me it's uh, the uh, the risk reward looks pretty favorable. with Goldman. The stock's around three twenty five right now, and the uh, the the book value is, is above three hundred dollars a share. So to me, there may not be much downside here. The stock has not performed great this year, but it's definitely it's outperformed some of the regional banks which have gotten hit harder.
0: Good point. All right, let's move on to commercial real estate and commercial real estate stocks. The outlook for commercial real estate is a hot topic in every major city in America. As people trickle back to the office, note I said trickle, not run, and that's part of the problem. Indeed, the future of American cities is a hot topic these days. What is the outlook for commercial real estate in your view, and where do you see value in some of the office reits
1: and other reits? Well, I mean, I think it may be somewhat overstated. The whole, I mean, office the office market is definitely weak, and uh, but I think that people are coming back to the office. I think. Uh, People in the media may be colored by the experience of living in New York and being in New York, where I think you've had a slower return to the office than in many of the uh, Sun Belt and the Midwest, and sort of and essentially Red America is, is more back in the office than Blue America, which is the coastal areas. So, um, but clearly New York has been has been a problem. Boston's been a problem. San Francisco's been a problem. Um, so, it, I mean, but the office market, is, as far as commercial real estate, is actually not a big portion of the portion of the market. Um, Apartments have been actually pretty strong, so has been um, data centers as well as warehouses, and even mall REITs are showing some life right now, both the regular malls as well as strip malls. And so the REIT sector is is probably flattish this year overall, Uh, like the VNQ, which is a Vanguard, I'm talking about the ETF, which is the Vanguard um, REIT Index. So you you mean you might just take if you're interested in REITs, you might just take a a broad brush approach and buy an ETF or buy or buy a a managed mutual mutual fund. I mean, I mean there's some good managers who who manage REIT funds. Last year was a poor year for REITs. This year's been so so. So you you can actually get in, I think, at at pretty good levels right now. And I think some of the concerns are overblown. Yes, offices are somewhat of a problem. In apartments, you're seeing slowing rent growth and, and more building in many of the Sunbelt markets, which could put a damper on things. But uh, overall, I think REITs REIT are actually a pretty good sector for uh, income-oriented investors to look at right now.
0: I love that we can ask you about almost any stock in any sector here at Barron's, and you, you've got the goods. You know the answer. So I want to take a quick look again at fixed income. You write a twice-yearly survey on 10 fixed income sectors, and you rank them from most attractive to least attractive. You have lots of investment ideas. As you look across the fixed income landscape now, what do you find most attractive?
1: Well, I would say I would say mortgage securities, which doesn't don't get a lot of attention, is taxable mortgage securities. They're government backed, uh, effectively government backed securities, yielding around six percent now, versus about four and a half, four and a quarter for Treasuries. They're historically wide the spreads, are historically attractive at a time when corporate bond spreads are actually fairly tight for investment-grade corporate, so I might highlight the mortgage-backed market. In munis, if you want to buy munis, the, the better values in the longer-term market where you have um, better yields relative to treasuries and better absolute yields, jump bonds are actually trading pretty well. I mean, they're not, they're not signaling anything about a recession uh, right now. so. So those are 8%, 9% yields. I would say preferreds are okay, not great. That market has held up pretty well in recent months. You're talking about 55 to 6% on preferred stock, which relative to treasuries is is good but not great. So uh, those are some of the areas that uh, that I would would highlight. Short-term rate, I mean, having cash right now is not a bad idea. Having a portion of your portfolio in cash, uh, (laughs) I mean, given 5% rates right now. And if you don't want to own treasuries, treasuries I think are finally... I think uh, after years of being really unattractive, I think four percent treasuries are not bad. they're basically a, almost a put option on the stock market to some degree. if, if stock if the economy starts to weaken um, and um, uh, the stock market falls I mean treasuries could rally nicely particularly long-term treasuries I mean like the TLT which is the uh, ETF for uh, long-term treasuries is a proxy for that. I mean I would say for investors who want to buy treasuries or mortgage securities, I would look to ETFs or are a number of, uh, ETFs in the mortgage area, and Vanguard and BlackRock have them. Uh, in Treasuries, there are num- a number of them. I would, I would highlight tips, tips for Treasury, uh, inflation-protected securities, there have real yields, which are in, uh, yields after inflation now of 2%, which is historically quite good. And um, so essentially means you're getting, you're getting a guaranteed 2% return above inflation over the, uh, over the long-term holding period of those bonds. So I would think that's actually an underappreciated area right now is the tips area. I would favor tips over regular treasuries right now, but, uh, I mean, re- but regular treasuries aren't bad.
0: All right. Well said. So I wanna go to some listener questions which have been coming in. We've got some good ones for you. We haven't talked about tech yet and we've got a couple of tech questions. So I'm gonna start with Jim. He asked, do you feel that the actions China took with the iPhone are a harbinger of larger issues that Apple will face with China in coming years?
1: Well, you know, I I, I think uh, Apple is uh, not, not particularly, attra- not very attractively priced right now. I mean, it's had a bit of a move up, but it's come down from the highs on the whole China risk. I mean, China's about 20% of Apple sales, and we don't quite know what the uh, profit contribution is, but... I mean, Apple's trading for almost 30 times earnings right now, and it's not really growing all that quickly. I mean, companies like um, Microsoft and, uh, and Alphabet are actually growing, be- going faster than the, the Apple right now. So you have kind of a slower growth story, and you have this Chinese risk, which is very difficult to quantify and very difficult to predict. They've been able to dance through the raindrops in China, and, and some of them managed to avoid being targeted by the Chinese despite the... Uh, tense American re- relationship with the United States, but I think uh, it, it, it could be problematic because uh, Apple is very much representative of the United States. That's
0: for sure. All right, we had a question from Gene. He wants to get your assessment of Nvidia at today's price level. You know,
1: I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm not an expert on Nvidia. We have reporters here, Eric Savis and Tay, uh, uh, who Thank follow more well, yeah Take him. And I mean, it's got a very high valuation. It's the obviously the best of the AI plays. I mean, its chips are vital to basically uh, the uh, the AI technology and the data centers that basically are involved. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to take a pass on the valuation there. It's obviously a very high value rate, valuation based on sales and earnings right now. But I, I, I don't know it well enough to have a, to have a strong opinion about it.
0: Fair enough. Do you have any thoughts? Paloma asks on Oracle, which reports tonight, and Adobe, which reports on Thursday.
1: No, I'll, I'll pass on both of them. I mean, Oracle is covered well by Eric Savitz here, and we have we have others. I mean, tech. I I follow tech, but I'm not. I don't have a strong a strong views or no tech as well as some of my colleagues here. So I, I think I, I'll pass on those two. Okay, that is
0: fair enough. Richard wants to know about the dollar versus the euro versus other currencies. You spend much time looking at the dollar, and if so, what
1: do you think? Well, it's been strong this year, and I think it's been yeah. supported by higher short-term rates in the United States and the prospect of higher rates for longer. And you know, in, in interest rates differ- differentials favor the United States, which favor the dollar. But you could argue that you know, international stocks now—I mean, which have lagged the uh, the U.S. markets for many years—are uh, looking more attractive. And one, uh, you know, icing on the cake could be uh, you know, a weaker dollar at some point. The Fed ultimately relents and starts to uh, cut short-term rates, which probably will happen sometime starting next year in 2024.
0: Does seem likely. Okay, let's move on and talk about some of the IPOs coming up. They will also be good for the banks and big underwriters. We've got an IPO of ARM coming this week. Paloma wants to know what your view is of the ARM IPO. And if you don't want to go there specifically, let's talk about the IPO mini revival.
1: Um, on, on ARM, I would just say it's it just it's just a very richly priced IPO in terms of. Pre- I mean, I think it's going to come to market. at something close to a hundred times earnings, and so um, to me, you know, that's I mean, that's, that's a pretty rich valuation. I know that the pluses with ARM in terms of uh, its uh, some of its attributes and um, and as far as being critical to you know many many industries and uh, as a um, but I mean. You're basically you know g- gonna pay quite a high price for it right now when it comes out if it comes out in the fifty to sixty billion dollar area where where Softbank has basically been targeting. What about instacart? Have you
0: looked at that deal?
1: You know what? I haven't looked at it closely I mean, but to me it's like I just don't understand I mean they're talking about advertising being a plus for them and I don't really quite understand their advertising business as well but it was kind of a COVID play when people didn't want to go shopping and wanted to have people go to supermarkets for them and buy them stuff. It seems to me that, that, that you know, that, that's become more difficult right now. And uh, I know they've slashed their valuation. They've, they've slashed what they want to want to get. And so I think that's a sign of, uh, you know, the, the, deal, uh, the deal, I mean, the deal might do well at, at, at the lower price. But I mean, I don't think uh, Instagram is particularly profitable, even after all these years.
0: Okay, Cynthia wanted to know about Instacart. Amy wants to know a bit more about healthcare, specifically managed care companies like United Health. Do you have any read on
1: those? Yes, I mean, they. I mean, they're. I mean, they're kind of steady eddies, and um, you know, United Health is the industry leader. It probably trades at a high teens, mid to high teens PE ratio right now. It's been somewhat out of favor because it's it's a pretty defensive stock. It's kind of like an anti-tech stock. Uh, United Health and some of the managed care providers like Humana and others. And so healthcare has been out of favor this year as people have been attracted to tech. So I would think, you know, I would think the uh, the, the the outlook for 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 um, the healthcare stocks is pretty good right now, and um, they're they're well managed. And um, I think they're they're getting more Medicare uh, um, patients. I mean, essentially more and more uh, people who are in Medicare almost half, I think, basically choose Medicare Advantage plans, in which United Health and particularly Humana are pretty big participants right now. And uh, they, they loss costs, I mean, the losses can bounce around. But overall, it, it, it's a pretty good industry, I think, at a pretty fair valuation right now.
0: Have we left out any sector or stock that you wanted to talk about?
1: No. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about any. I mean, we have we don't have much time left. So I'm happy right. to talk about any other stocks or any other sectors are there any tech stocks that look particularly cheap to you
0: among the big recognized tech stocks
1: i mean i i to my view i mean i mean i i mean alphabet remain, remains a very i mean a well managed company it's kind of it's, it's it's i think managing the uh um ai chat gpt uh situation pretty well i think it will emerge on the other side plus there are it's a, it's a sum of the part story there are a lot of interesting businesses inside um uh, inside Alphabet now, and uh, so I, I think that I think that they've been they they were kind of shocked by what what, what Microsoft did and basically coming out ahead of them there, and I think I think the I think the culture there is more focused, and and now you have Ruth Porat there, who's their for, who's their CFO who's moving over to oversee some what they call their other bets, which are. Essentially, some of their newer businesses, many which like are not are not making money, like Waymo, which is the autonomous driving company, which is which is one of the leaders there. And I think there'll be more financial discipline there. And so I think I think the, the combination there is pretty good. Plus, you know, very good balance sheet with about hundred billion dollars in more in cash.
0: So that should be an interesting move to move her over there. So Andrea, I want to end with a little bit of a quiz. I don't know when we'll grade you. Maybe next time you're on Barron's Live, but. If you had hundred dollars in cash to invest right now, what would you do with it?
1: Well, if, if I had a hundred, I'm not sure. But if I had a million, though, yeah. I let me tell you, I'd say I'd put about I, I, U.S. stocks. I put about thirty percent into the S and P 500 overall, about fifteen percent into small cap stocks, which have which have lagged. I also like international, which is which is um, which has been laggards. I would put I'd put about twenty five percent international, split evenly between. Ah, uh, developed markets and the um, emerging markets, and the rest about 30 percent. I put in, I I put in bonds and cash. I focus on mortgage securities, junk bonds, maybe closed-end muni funds if you like muni's, as well as maybe 10 percent in cash. That's that, that, that's how I do it. I would avoid alternatives. I think alternatives are not are, I think are often high fee, and um, I think the 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 outlook for for private equity and a, and a lot of the alternative assets is actually not as great as what their boosters say. They, they point to historical returns, which have been good, but I think the, the key thing is going looking forward. And I think it's going to be difficult for private equity and private real estate to earn pretend, the kind of returns that they've earned historically, partly because rates are higher. It's going to make it's much harder. It's harder and more expensive to get financing right now. And I think the so-called 60-40, much maligned 60-40 blend of stocks and bonds or 70, 30 stocks bonds bonds is actually pretty attractive right now. Don't look back. You got to look forward. When you invest in bonds, it's a going in yield that matters, not historical returns. Don't focus on historical returns. It's what the going in yields, what current yields are that matter. And I think bonds are actually going to be a very good um, alternative to basically alternative assets right now.
0: I am so glad we had you on Barron's Live today. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, very uh, much,
1: very much. My pleasure. You. I'm glad to uh, join you, Lauren.
0: Okay, and thank you all. Listeners, we appreciate your questions and thanks for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, you'll hear from Opus Energy Insights, our sister publication. Folks at Opus will examine the $10 trillion opportunity to net zero. The transition to green energy offers massive growth potential to the world economy. Opus will be speaking with experts from Oxford Economics and dead Energy, live from the World Chemical Forum in Houston. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in today. Thanks, Andrew. Stay well, everyone. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.